What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode number 34. Today we're talking about a particular archetype. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts, and joining me as per usual, Ben Fisher. Ben? I, I can't wait any longer. We're talking about the five-color decks, dude. I'm so excited for this episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. We're talking all about five-color, not just call time decks, but five-color as an archetype, uh, all, all told. Every archetype, every format that you can kind of learn from this archetype and how to better draft it in the future. So we'll get into that in just a moment. But before we do, of course, we have to plug our sponsor, which in this case is Patreon. That's right. You, the listener, can give back to the show directly. Support us with your hard-earned dollar at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. And in fact, we have two new patrons to shout out this week. We have Jaren, who has been a long, long-time supporter in the Discord, is now also a supporter on the Patreon. Thank you very much Thanks, for your support, Jaren. Really can't thank you enough. And of course, we also have Dragonwell, who is a new new patron as well. Just joined into the Discord, so make sure to say hello and make them feel welcome. But thank you both Thanks, so much for your support. Yeah. We really can't thank you enough. It's still wild to me that people are willing to support us in any way, <laughs> let alone by yeah. giving us money. So thank you so much. We, it really is awesome. We, Really appreciate it. It's the best. And honestly, uh, when we say that you're the sponsor, it really does keep us going. Like podcasting, believe it or not, it does have a bunch of fees associated with it. Uh, although it does seem like apparently any two goons can just sit down and start a podcast, you know, hosting and whatnot. Uh, uh, we, we appreciate uh, you all kind of giving back to us. Absolutely. And one other thing we like to plug at the beginning of every episode is the Discord. As I mentioned, uh, Jaron and Dragonwell there are members of the Discord. If you're interested in getting involved with the rest of the, the Draft Chaff community, that is the best place to do it over on the Discord. You can check out the link to that in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page at Draft Chaff Pod. Mm-hmm. If you want to see some good you know, screenshots of gameplay, I like to toss little things that happen here and there. Uh, this week, my favorite one was I started trolling my opponent. And uh, it went really, really well. So uh, check out the Discord if you're interested. So that brings us to our crack and draft type thing. This week we have a pretty spicy one, Ben. I was in the middle of a draft, and this is pack three, pick two we're looking at. And yes, mm. I know, it. that sounds like a weird space to be making real decisions in a draft. A lot of times by pack three, you're just you're on cruise control. Your deck's putting itself together at that point, but this actually was something I needed to think about, and I paused on this this pick, and I immediately snapped a picture of this uh, pack because I knew, at the very least, if it wasn't going to be a crack and draft type thing, I needed to talk to you about it. Um, we mm-hmm. haven't talked about it, listener, if you're curious about that, Ben and I have not talked about this pick yet, so you're getting our first-hand thoughts live right here. So, to set the stage, of course, we're in pack three. There have been quite a few picks already made. Uh, so we're looking at sort of a green-red beats deck, as I would like to ca- uh, to call it. We have a couple of Guardian Glade Walkers. It's the two-mana 1-1 one, one Changeling that adds a counter to something when it ETBs. Arnie slays the troll, an Axe Guard Cavalry, uh, two Ice Hide Trolls. Pretty happy about that. We also have an Old Growth Troll, a Svela Ice, Cha- uh, Ice Shaper. Um, there's an Elder Leaf Mentor and an Essica's Chariot, as well as a Struggle for Skemfar. A squash, and actually ended up picking up a second squash later on in the draft. And uh, what are we looking at? Five different snowlands. We got a snow covered island, snow covered forest, the volatile fjord, not vold slumber mound, and an alpine meadow, which I didn't end up playing. Um, and then the, so there's also a frosty yeti. I was looking at potentially a, a third color splash here with blue, but that's kind of mm-hmm. where we're, where the deck's at. There's a cinder cinderheart giant as well, rounding out the top end. But here's the pack. So first, there's an arctic tree line, a nice green white. 
Snowland seems to fit with some of the things that are going on in this deck already. There's a Seral's Packmate, which obviously, best green common, very, very good card, kind of hard to pass. Mm-hmm. But then you look around the, the rest of the pack, there's also a Rune of Might and a Basalt Ravager. It's like, what are you supposed to do here? I'm, I'm in this red-green beats deck. Basalt Ravager seems to fit very well. I've got a handful of Giants, a handful of Changelings. It's a great card, but how do you pass a Seral's Packmate? And then the Rune of Might also seems like it could be be something to play around with. I wasn't super hard on the, the Arctic Tree Line. I know it's a, a great card in the decks that care about the snow cards, mm-hmm. but it's also like half off color, ETB tapped, and I didn't have a ton of snow payoffs, so I wasn't really super excited to take the Tree Line here. What are your thoughts, Ben? What a pick. Uh, I, I mean, you sent me this like several days ago, and every time I look at your deck, I see like something else. Like, I, I didn't realize there was an old growth troll. That's the green, 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 four, four rare troll that just keeps coming back uh, until like just now. I didn't even see it the first time I looked. So there's a few other things that I want to note about your deck. You have a Boreal Outrider, which whenever a creature is cast, if snow of its color was spent to cast it, it comes in with a 1-1 counter. And right now you do have snowlands of your main colors of red and green. However, you only have uh, two red sources and they both include an off color. They're both uh, duels. So they come in tapped. And then you have one snow forest. Yeah. So this Arctic tree line wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, given that, you know, it, it would be an additional snow source. Just even if it's coming in tapped, you don't have anything else to do on turn one. You're, you're not really a turn one deck. Even though this is a red green deck, it's kind of a bigger red green deck. Mm-hmm. Guardian Gladewalker starts the curve, but this isn't a two drop heavy red green deck. This isn't something like the uh, the super aggressive, I don't know, the, the best version of red green in battle for, or in, uh, in uh, Zendikar Rising. The best version of that deck was like super aggressive, just as many two drops as you can get. This is a very different red green deck, right? So you've got a bunch right. of good three drops, good four drops, good five drops. You've got a rootless U that can go get that Cinderheart giant, and notably a Spella Ice Shaper. This is the kind of red green deck that doesn't necessarily want to be attacking on turn three. It wants to go bigger into the late game. So these Ice Hide Trolls can, you know, help close it out. Struggle for Skemfar, Asuka's Cherry. You're going to kind of go over the top with this one. Cinderheart Giant is, is kind of the key of that. So looking at these cards and seeing what fits, in the pack, there's also a few other things. There's some nonsense. There's like Broken Wings, which I do actually think you can play if you're if you're low on interaction. There's a Funeral Longboat, which I don't think is great. It, it looked okay at first, but it just hasn't really shaken out very well. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the one I want to get rid of right away is Rune of Might. I don't think your deck is in the market for this right now. Yeah, that was uh, that was actually the lowest on my list as well. It was something I every time I see a rune pass by, I'm interested in it in some capacity. It always piques my interest. But yeah, I agree. This was kind of the the end of my short list uh, was Runemite. Mm-hmm. So I think Basalt Ravager is interesting. This is the format of four two. It comes in and it it domes something for how much uh, how, what are the greatest number of creatures you control is. So this can go face, which I found pretty impressive, or it can just kind of be a flame tongue Kavu, uh, an end of the battlefield deal like three or four to something which is just great your deck is a little bit low on removal you have these you have a struggle for skemfar and a squash and i guess you could count cinderheart giant but that's not really the uh the counter removal we're looking for and then arnie slays the troll i guess crush the weak is hiding in your deck there that can you know sweep up some of the smaller things but uh that makes this a little more appealing uh it would bring you up to like four or slash five ish good removal spells or like removal-esque creatures and then last but not least, I think Seraph's Packmate, which is just probably the safest pick, right? This is going to go in any green deck. It would help shore up your two-drop slot a little bit, given that you don't have too much to do on turn two. Uh, you, this would leave you with like six things or so to, to do on turn two, which I think is really important. You don't want to pass turn two with just doing nothing. 
right. uh, in this format. If you're not foretelling and you're not playing a creature, then you're just going to wind up behind. Whew. And then, of course, back to that Arctic tree line where that helps your Boreal Outriders. you got two Arctic Trolls. And if you're playing these Snowlands, the only other way you could get that activated, remember that costs double snow, would be with Svela, which is actually pretty real. If you're Svela-ing and making those uh, those icy manoliths, those things stick around. Uh, and you could activate the Ice Side Trolls with those. Oh, man, what a pick. Yeah, so... I kind of went through a very similar thought process to you when I was looking at this. My biggest concern going into pack three was removal. As you mentioned, I have relatively few removal spells, and the ones I do have Mm -hmm. are pretty conditional. So I had an eye out for removal, which put Basalt Ravager near the top of my list in this pack. Um, It's, yeah, not traditional removal, but it it does stick around after the fact. And, you know, in this deck, it's probably going to be pinging. I have a lot of trolls and, like, a handful of berserkers and a handful of giants, and then a couple of changelings to kind of, like, shore that up. So I figured mm-hmm. I could reasonably, reliably end up dinging for a three, and potentially, you know, four if if I get lucky. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of shored up a lot of my, like, spot removal. I felt that put me in a way better place from a spot removal perspective. The Crush of the Week was a speculative pick to try to shore up my game against the, the white Flyers deck, because, like, 90% of my creatures have, like... F- three plus toughness so it really doesn't kill any of my stuff that said um i did end up taking the basalt ravager here i figured as far as the snowlands go that given that it's only pick two in pack three i can shore up my my removal suite early here and then just pick up snowlands as they came in the rest of the pack uh and then you know it was pretty sad to pass the seraph's packmate because i don't really have any card advantage as far as like drawing cards goes in this deck but i didn't think it was Mm. actually that necessary so that's where we ended up. Man, I honestly am stumped on what I take here. I Part of me thinks that the Arctic tree line is probably the right pick um, because at this point, I guess it would also depend on how the rest of the draft is going. If you were seeing these Snowlands tabling or not, especially the green ones, which are, you know, of, of course, the just the highest ones uh, in, the, in the pick order for the, the snow deck, because it's, uh, as we'll talk about, uh, tends to be green based. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so that I mean that was the other thing too. I had seen a few of them wheel, but nothing nothing, you know, overwhelmingly surprising and most of the ones that were wheeling were off color as you can kind of see in in the picks that I have. I was a little worried about it being do- like off color uh from the from the white perspective because there wasn't a whole lot that was pointing me to a white splash in the previous packs yeah. whereas I saw a potential for a blue splash in the previous packs. I, I agree, though, like an argument could be made to take it here. I just figured it was better to try to shore up that, that four drop slot and the removal slot and, you know, go from there and try to table some some uh, Snowlands after the fact. But I totally understand that as a pick as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I probably would have taken the Ravager. Even I think I would have taken the Ravager and felt guilty, <laughs> right? That's fair. Because then fair. You're, you're passing a Packmate and this, this Snowland that just kind of turns on a lot of your deck. But I can definitely see that this deck would be soft to flyers as it is trying to wait until the late game. Uh, if you just get run over by a bunch of you know angels and, and little dorky birds, then it's going to feel pretty bad knowing that this deck does want to get to the long game and the Ravager does really help with that. So does the Packmate. Um, and I guess those two I would probably take above the tree right, line just so because tough. it doesn't actually... Oh my god. All right. Tell you what, people. Uh, hop onto the Discord and let us know what you would take in this pack. Zach can post this same picture on the on the Discord so everyone can see it. Maybe we'll do a poll or something, see what people think. 
Yeah, that would be interesting. I will say, after having put the deck together, I did end up picking up a second squash, as I mentioned, so that kind of also helped shore up the uh, the removal suite. I didn't. There were a couple of cuts that I made, and I didn't end up playing the Alpine Meadow mm-hmm. because I, I think I picked up a, another um, snow-covered forest or something. Yeah, okay. But maybe, maybe. I, I am currently... I haven't finished the run with this deck yet. I'm like 3-1, I think, and that one loss was against a... Uh, blue red giants deck that didn't actually play that many giants but they happen to have two of the uh the living weapon giant uh artifact equipment that you know the, the one that makes a giant but it yeah, gives yeah. it gives hex proof and it made it incredibly difficult to deal with these things and then they also basically they ended the game by giving uh, i can't remember what the creature was that they had attached to it but it was um it was uh they had one of the the blue artifacts on it the the giant equipment mm-hmm. so it had hexproof they also were able to give it flying with a rune the the blue rune and then they played a uh, a calamity bearer and it happened to be a giant as well so it was <laughs> it, it swung for like four i had exactly 14 life and it swung for exactly 14 on the turn yeah. like if they couldn't kill me that turn i had them the next turn it was it was pretty sad but it, it was actually a pretty good game you know, it's funny, uh, something that we were talking about before the show, the names of cards are so hard to learn in this set because uh, I think our, I think I figured it out. Our brains are so focused on learning all the text. Like I still have to double check like frostbite to see if it checks snow lands or snow permanence. Yeah. Uh, I think because of that, we've been so focused on learning, you know, all of this text because there's just so much of it. There's, there's, these cards are very complex that like the names of the cards, not as important. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I wonder what the average word count if you totaled up like the word count on cards or like per card, you got, you took the average per card word count. I'm curious how it stacks up to other sets. Cause it's, Someone it's gotta that. be, it's gotta be pretty far above the, like the average set. Right. Yeah. I- I'm sure at the end of the year, Frank Karsten will come out with something, something about that or other. Right. Yeah. That, that sounds about right. But that, that does it for our cracker draft On to our Teferi Tibble. If you're new to the show, this is the section where Ben and I talk about our weeks, what went well, what went poorly and uh, kind of just, bear out uh what happened with us this week so ben why don't you kick us off sure this is a pretty exciting time in magic uh, we had a bunch of big announcements on our very uh, recording day which is uh, we, we record on wednesday this is the 10th so the arena open is coming back it's coming up we've got a limited one and there's already hype brewing in the discord we might be doing some practice leagues uh, if you're interested in joining us for that uh, i certainly am I want to get some practice in. I, ha- I don't usually play sealed uh, on, on Arena. I love playing sealed in pre-release. It's honestly one of my favorite types of tournaments to go to. Like, there's nothing quite like a midnight pre-release with like a, a big mug of tea and, and some friends in tow. Yeah, I mean, that is like easily the most amazing time uh, for Magic, for me at least. And most of the time, uh, listener Ben and I live relatively close to each other. Most of the time, we we like meet up to to do pre-releases together we'll hang out at midnight we'll go like you know till five in the morning or whatever grab some grab some breakfast sandwiches and just crash after the fact but it's yeah the it's best. an amazing time obviously we haven't had that in quite a few sets now but um mm. getting to do some sealed that's the only time i ever play sealed uh, so i agree getting the getting sealed in the arena open is going to be really awesome yeah uh, also, we heard today that Uro is on the chopping block via a secret layer announcement. <laughs> what? Dude, what? What's going on? I, I'll, I'll take what I can get. Admittedly, those secret layers, they do look pretty sweet. It's too bad Uro is not going to be, you know, very playable <laughs> anywhere. I was actually pretty excited about some of the other secret layers. Uh, I bought the Thalia one a while ago. And since then, some have piqued my interest. The Seth McKinnon one I was eyeing with 
the greedy eyes, but I didn't end up picking that one up. Maybe someday I'll pick up the singles from it. And uh, the, the fairies one that came out today has some sweet kind of like like 90s super like color pop art. It looks really oh, I haven't sweet. I have seen that one yet. Yeah, there's a, they reprinted like V-Click, uh, Glenelendra Archmage. There, there's some sweet stuff in there. But uh, anyway, um, one other thing that's been kind of keeping me going uh, is I'm, I'm moving on to some new stuff in school. I'm finally done kinematics. I've been so sick of kinematics. My students were like also sick of kinematics. So I'm like, all right, we're done with this. Let's just blaze through what we have to do and get to some other stuff. Uh, and last but not least, a Discord server that I'm in uh, from kind of some random like local gamers in South Jersey, uh, where, of course, Zach and I are both from. They've started having these nightly movie night viewings where they'll just like start streaming a movie and like 20 or so people will just like stop playing whatever game they're playing and just hop on. So oh, right now cool. we've yeah, we, we've been watching the M. Night Shyamalan uh cinematic universe i guess you could oh, say no. the movies that have un- it starts with unbreakable and then it's oh, split those. Okay. and then glass yeah yeah uh, a glass is tonight so nice. I-, I think i've already seen that one but i haven't yeah. seen the, any the, of them they're um uh, it, it's so strange seeing a superhero-esque i i wouldn't call them superhero movies at all but seeing something within that realm after the uh after having you know experienced the entire marvel cinematic universe it's a, it's quite a change. Uh, it's, it's refreshing in some ways, but at the same time, it's like, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it lacks a bit of the, the pop that, that gotcha. Marvel tends to have with it. You know, that, that kind of a rush of, it's, it's some mix of like nostalgia and crowd pleasing that, that Marvel has so delicately pinned. Yeah. yeah. But anywho, my, my table for this week is, uh, there's just so much snow. It, it just keeps snowing. It won't stop. Like I, I looked at the the weather forecast for the next week. It's supposed to snow like I don't know seven out of the next fourteen days or something. It, but like little flurries here and there. So hopefully there's no more big storms. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll get some snow days out of it. That that'd be good. Yeah, I, I think it's so funny this area. Like we frequently, you know, when when the when the shift from fall or autumn to to winter happens, I think a lot of people in this area are like, "Yay, snow! I can't wait to get some mm-hmm. snow." Because it's very hit or miss from year to year whether we're gonna actually get any that is of any real amount. Uh, and then ex- as soon as it's here, we're like, "Please stop! We're spring." <laughs> yeah, like we we get it. <laughs> so, anyway, what's yeah. up with you? Yeah, well, uh, of course. Arena Open being limited is huge. I'm super excited to have some some higher stakes tournaments in in limited formats. Um, there's a little bit of shenanigans with the whole like we can't figure out how to do a, a big tournament with draft if you can't have eight players. And I've seen some back and forth on it. You know, people are are arguing about they've done this in person for quite a while. It can't be that hard to do online. Yada yada. Whatever your stance is on that, that's fine. But I'm just glad we're getting limited out in in a in a higher. Uh, more like a higher stakes environment yeah and to that point they also announced that the march mythic qualifier is going to all be sealed which is oh really the whole the whole mythic qualifier weekend for march is uh is is sealed as well yeah oh sweet i don't even know that i have to play this i have to play standard for this month like ugh, (laughs) no thanks qualify for next month and you'll get to play some more sealed absolutely i'm in uh and then uh, last week i mentioned i was going on a trip with my wife uh we went up to like upstate new york and just had a blast um we were only there for a couple of nights like we basically spent the weekend but it was awesome we got to do a lot of hiking it snowed while we were hiking which was really cool to be out in the middle That's of the woods sweet. and one of my favorite um i'm like very audio oriented i'm not i'm not quite an audiophile but like i really appreciate sounds mm-hmm. and we 
we were out in the middle of the woods. There was nobody else around us, and the snow started falling. And one of my favorite sounds is actually like the absence of sound that snow creates, like the way it dampens sound. Ah, uh, like a sound yeah. of its own. That's true. I don't know. That's kind of meta, but yeah, it's one of my favorite. <laughs> one of my favorite things to listen to is just like how dampened everything is when there's a lot of snow around. So that was super awesome. It was really exciting to uh, to be out in. I also got some pretty cool uh, pictures. So that was fun. Ah, I saw some of them. They're pretty good. Yeah, thanks. I uh, I've been kind of taking that a little more seriously seriously lately. So I, I kind of started like a new Instagram account and everything to. Uh, you gonna plug it? You're just gonna say it, and not plug it? <laughs> oh, I I mean, yeah, it's just my name. You can just Zach <laughs> underscore Hackett if you're interested in pictures that aren't magic related. Um, but my my Tybalt uh, this week is that I've been having a hard time staying focused just in general, like with anything at all. Like I'll start working on something. And then like three minutes later, I'm on to something else. And then I'm back mm. to that thing. And it's just been a mess. And that doesn't really work too well for productivity. So I'm hoping that I can get more focused and, and get, get on track this week. Yeah, I think COVID has collectively fried everyone's brains a little bit, right? Yeah, I would say so. So we've got a pretty good listener question this week. Andy X asks, when would you go to 18 lands? I can't say I ever have, but I believe it is sometimes correct. In fact, usually go to 16, like 50, 50% of the time. When should I be looking to play 18 lands? This is a very good question. And it is, as with everything, context dependent. So I kind of want to approach this from the opposite direction. Uh, what kind of deck wants to be playing 18 lands? Yeah, so generally from a format perspective, you you tend to, and I'll take this from like almost the flip side of that question. And that's like, how, when do you want to play 16 lands necessarily? When do you want to go below 17? And generally those are very aggressive decks that don't really care about hitting their fourth land drops, right? You just, you want to get very aggressive one, two, three drop, play a bunch of creatures. And then if you miss the rest of your lands, you don't really care. Mm -hmm. The decks that want more than 17 lands are decks that really care about having a high curve, either, you know, you're expecting you need to hit your sixth, seventh land drop or fifth, sixth land drop. Or you really need to reliably hit your four. Maybe you have a, t a four heavy, you know, your curve is kind of centered on four instead of three. You want extra lands so you can increase the chance that you are hitting those land drops when you need them. Mm -hmm. Right. So a deck that wants to play 18 lands shouldn't really mind hitting its sixth land drop, right? Like some right. decks that would just like usually run the stock 17 that would draw their sixth land and go, ugh, like I don't have anything to do with this now. Maybe you're playing a white-black deck with a, a bit of a lower curve, not a lot of deck manipulation or card draw, and you draw that sixth land, and you just you really needed a creature or a removal spell that term. Well, some decks want to go a little bit bigger. Uh, they want to make use of that land. So I'd say decks... I, I'd say my, my ultimate answer to this question is a deck that can use its sixth land effectively is, is the cutoff, and then seventh and eighth kind of come with that. So in this format specifically, uh, a deck that has maybe two ravenous linworms uh, those are going to win a lot of games on their own. The uh, Ravenous Linworm, the Yara Mirror Lake kind of blue-green two-punch combo, uh, that's a really easy way to win games. If your deck needs to hit these land drops in order to win games, then, yeah, don't be afraid to play 18. I actually played 18 in a deck that I uh, I had yesterday. It was Teamers, so, uh, blue, green, red, and it had just well, exactly what I said, uh, a few Linworms, like Svela, that kind of thing. A deck that didn't mind going big because it also had a, a few good mana sinks and ways to make use of this mana into the late game. If you're not going to use the mana, then why why would you want you know to hit right. that sixth land? Yeah, and then there's there's also an argument to be made about the the potential for so many lands in your opener. Uh, another another mm -hmm. 
piece of this that people tend to bring into it, especially when talking about 16 lands. Obviously, if you go down a land, you have a less, you have a smaller likelihood that you're going to have X lands in your hand when you start the game. And that can affect your curve as well. And that's something that a lot of decks that are more aggressively slanted don't care as much about because they just have that low, that low curve. Bigger decks might want their fourth land drop early. They want to have it so they know they're going to hit it. Uh, so adding an extra land can help out there. But also, if you're talking about playing on Arena, there's the, the whole hand-smoothing algorithm to take into account as well if you're playing best of one. There is, uh, if you aren't familiar, there is a smoothing algorithm that, that Arena pl- takes into account. On best of one, that kind of ensures, they basically take, it draws you two hands uh, and takes the one that is the best from a lands to spells ratio kind of consideration that's an oversimplification of what it's doing but that's kind of the gist so you're more likely to get the optimal curve uh, from a land to non-land ratio perspective in best of one that also kind of plays into this a little bit as well and i think is a reason why we don't really see too many people playing 18 lands anymore and we've had a lot of relatively fast formats lately Mm -hmm. just one last hard example if you have something like a coma in your deck if you're able to cast and resolve coma then yeah, you're going to win the game, right? But you need to make sure you've got double green and double blue. So maybe you want to go up uh, if you're about to play like, I don't know, what one uh, kind of like crappy card that you otherwise weren't going to play. Maybe you're about to put like, uh, I don't know, like a broken wings in that you didn't really need. Just be like, oh, it doesn't really matter. I'm just, I'd rather get that last land in there. Uh, just that one extra to hit 18 so I can reliably hit that slam coma uh, as you know effectively as possible on turn what is that seven and you know win the game most of the time when i when i cast it instead of you know the corner case where you'd have it rotting in your hand when you don't draw that last land yeah great question thanks for that andy so on to the main topic uh, i kind of titled this five color nonsense uh snow pile whatever you want to call it i i've been affectionately referring to these decks as snow piles because you know that you can have a pile of snow <laughs> uh, if you're if you're more of a, a savant at crafting this deck. You could call it a, a, the five-color igloo. You know, it's a snow pile, but you, <laughs> act, you actually put it together nicely, and, and it looks like oh my a God. structure. I, I guess. <laughs> so five-color snow is an archetype in Kaldheim that's it's all the rage right now, right? This is a very splashy set, especially with the rise in popularity of gold vein pick and these off-color duels. I think those have both moved up in people's pick orders pretty significantly. So I want to walk through this five-color archetype how to draft it in general, what we think of it in Kaldheim. But to do this, I want to build up an idea of what the five-color deck is. So a great way to do this is to look at history, right? So I'm going to draw a little bit from my my physics teaching. Uh, One of the best ways to learn physics is to look at how it was historically developed. It always follows the same pattern, which is uh, you make some observations and you come up with a hypothesis and then you test it. That's just kind of the, the golden rule. Uh, It's what Galileo did. It's what Newton did. So I want to apply that to this. I want to make some observations of past five-color decks. I want to come up with some ideas based on them. And then I want to see how those shake out in Kaldheim. Sounds good to me. So first of all, what are we even talking about when we say a five-color limited deck? So if you're playing five different colors of cards in your deck, it means you must have a pretty good reason to do so, right? So you could play a five-color deck in theoretically any format, but most of the time it just won't work. So Think about trying to play five colors in like Zendikar Rising. Unless, I mean, I think I saw one person try to make Omnath work once. (laughs) You're really not going to get there. Yeah. So like any other limited deck, it's always important to ask, is this game plan good in context, right? 
So there's usually no such thing as a five color deck in a given limited environment. It's it's just statistically not able to work because of how lands and spells need to be cast. Yeah, of course, uh, when, when we say this, we're talking about a winnable, like a deck that has a, a decent chance of winning the game. Of course, you could jam five colors in any deck. Nobody's stopping you from doing that. But if you want to actually win games, most formats don't support them. And uh, I think one other caveat that's worth mentioning when we talk about a five color archetype is there is no set set or steadfast rule as to how many of each of the colors need to be in the deck for it to be considered five color, right? So if a, if a, if a deck is mainly two color, but then splashes those other three, it's still a five color deck. Mm-hmm. Right. Kind of along those same lines, decks that are five colors tend to not be exactly five colors. They usually tend to be green at base. And then I think statistically it, the colors that get added in order after that would be blue is next. Then uh, maybe red, white, black, or red, black, white. The Mardu colors all kind of fall uh, along the same axis, but I think uh, th- those usually are all about the same. So the first step into this is seeing what the payoffs are. So five-color decks limited tend to fall into one of either two piles, uh, the ones that were intended by the design team and ones that were not intended by the design team. So right now we have one that was intended, but that's not actually always the case, as we'll get to soon. So like I said, as uh, uh, with any other deck, a five-color deck has to have enablers and payoffs. So enablers tend to be uh, in green and blue. They, they provide pretty efficient enabling, either through mana manipulation or card draw or card manipulation fixing. And uh, as for fixing, I wanted to kind of get into this a little bit as a side note. Some fixing ramps you, uh, like a, a rampant growth, right? Some do not. Uh, filter lands, for example, ones that they, a land that says uh, you'll have to pay one mana, tap it, and add one mana of any color. That actually puts you down a mana. Those types of effects are often awful. Some only tap for colors that you already have. Uh, some mana dorks do this, mana elves or things like that, or lands that only tap for colors that you control already. So those don't actually help you splash additional colors. Some are repeatable, like you know lands, and some are not, like treasures. Once you use a treasure, it's gone. You've kind of used that that one time. Some effects get lands from your deck, and some put them right into play. So all of these things are factors that you have to take into consideration. One that I think is especially prevalent, especially now uh, in modern magic, are dual lands. We see common dual lands, what, like every other set at this point? Something so like those that, yeah. tend to be, yeah, those tend to be pretty great ways of splashing, even into three colors or occasionally into five. Yeah, and these these enablers or more specifically fixing as an enabler is the linchpin that puts these five color decks together right if you can't reliably get the ability to spend all five colors of mana you're probably not turning your deck on as as well as it could be or maybe not at all and like we said most of these decks aren't truly five color they are splashing maybe one card or something like that but you still need to be able to get that mana to cast those cards so fixing is is generally the linchpin of these five color archetypes Mm-hmm. It tends to be better to take fixing over payoffs. Uh, it's always, this is kind of like a, a rule. Enablers enable your payoffs. If you just take every payoff and only have one enabler, <laughs> it's not going to work out well, right? You're just going to have a hand stuck of, full of payoffs. And then if you don't happen to draw your enabler early or enablers, if we're talking five color, you might need multiple, right? You might need to draw five different lands to get this to work or get them out somehow. And that kind of leads itself to a self-fulfilling prophecy in the draft. If you start scooping up every enabler you see to a specific archetype, and this works for any archetype, not just the five-color one, but five-color is interesting because there are very specific enablers that you need to pick up to make the deck work. And if you start picking up all those enablers early, 
you're going to see the payoffs because people won't have been able to take the enablers, which means they won't want the payoffs, which means they'll pass them, and that means you'll get them. Mm-hmm. So payoffs tend to fall into two main categories. I've been, I feel like I've been saying that a lot, but I've been doing a lot of breaking down. I've been really digging into this analysis. So there tend to be splashable cards that are easy to cast in the late game once you've drawn them. Uh, once you've drawn them and, and their source required, right? So I think Starnheim Unleashed is a good example of this. You can foretell it and cast it for white and then XXX, right? Or XX. So you could dump like only white and then a bunch of the mana into this. So as long as you've got that one white source, you don't mind if you draw it on turn 10 because then you're getting a huge payoff. Or the other option for payoffs is cards that rewards you for having the most colors possible up to five. That'd be something like Path of the World Tree, which actually requires... Uh, five different colors to activate. So another side note here for payoffs is that by nature, five color decks are late game decks as you really can't do anything five colored before turn five unless you have some kind of really strange situation going on. For the most part, these decks are going to want to be doing their thing in the late game. Yeah, agreed. And some some formats will allow that that whole five color thing, whatever that deck does, because every format, it kind of does something slightly different, even though they're all late game decks and they all have some sort of big payoff at the end. There are some formats, and actually I think Call Time is one of them, where you can kind of get that going before turn five. You know, if you happen to go a turn three Svela into like your fourth land into uh, the five color, uh, the, the activate Svela to get an Icy Manolith, like you can get five mana worth on turn four, but you're not really using it at that point. So if we start taking a look back in history, we've had some pretty interesting five-color decks come around. And I'm really excited to talk about these. Those that aren't familiar with these sets, I recommend you know pull up the spoilers, take a look back. One way I found to get better at Magic is just by knowing old cards, too, and kind of knowing the context of them and, and how they worked. It's just something fun you could do in, in, your, in your free time. Plus, I just like looking at old spoilers, seeing what the, the draft format might have been like. So I think by taking a look at some historically successful and flopped five-color decks, we can better understand what we're working with here in Kaldheim. So in the time that we've been playing Magic, there are four five-color decks that come to mind. Uh, and two of them I'd call hits, two of them I'd call misses. First up, we have my personal favorite. This is from Rivals of Ixalan. This was Blue-White Treasure. So one of the rare ones where green wasn't necessary. Sometimes you would play green in this deck, but it was at base a blue-white deck. Now, this is actually a bit of context. Back when sets worked a little differently, there was a big set and then usually a small set that accompanied it, and they'd kind of be tied together in you know the plane where they were set and themes and mechanics. So Ixalan was one of the worst draft formats in the past 10 years, if not the worst. Rivals of Ixalan, on the other hand, was a small set that accompanied it, so you would draft two packs of rivals, and it was a, like I said, a smaller set. I think it only had like 200-some cards in it. Mm-hmm. And then one pack of original Ixalan, uh, so it was a 2-2-1 two, two, format. Now, this draft format was very weird uh, because Ixalan had been very synergy-based. It was tribal synergy, but think uh, everything that went right about tribal in Zendikar Rising went wrong in Ixalan. Well, one of the decks that crept up in the rivals draft was Blue-White Ascend. Now, this archetype focused on getting 10 permanents, and it focused on doing it late in the game. So it had toughness-heavy creatures. We're talking 1-4s, 2-5s, flyers, uh, token makers, and treasures, actually. So Sailor of Means and Suncrested Pterodon were all-stars. Sailor of Means is a uh, 2 and a blue for a 1-4, and when it enters the battlefield, you make a treasure. And Suncrested Pterodon was a 2-5 flying for 5, I think? And if you have another dinosaur, it has vigilance. So... You just couldn't attack through these things. Now, because of the prevalence of treasures in this format, 
you would draft this blue-white deck in the first two packs. You'd grab all the pieces you needed from rivals. And then the joke of the format was, if you were in this blue-white deck, whatever bomb rare you opened from your Ixalan pack, you would just take and just put in your deck because you would have so much treasure that you'd be able to splash it. So you wouldn't even necessarily have to be running uh, off-color lands for this. You could play, like, I think... I don't remember if there were duels in that set. I, I don't believe there were. But you could play like rare lands if you got them or other nonsense. There were some flip lands in that set too that you could you could just jam anything in that deck. And uh, really, the treasures would get you there on the fixing. So I, I actually almost infamously one time played a blue-white deck uh, and I was splashing for Tetsamok Primal Death, which was a card that let you reveal it and pay one black mana to put like a death counter on something. And then... Uh, when you cast it, you just kill everything with the death counters on them. Or I forget what it was called. Like a what was that? Like a menacing counter? Or... I think it, I think death counter sounds right, but it was something like that. I can't remember. It was an absurd bomb, but it was super black mana hungry, and I didn't even care. I just played one swamp, and it, it was awesome. It won every game. So this this deck worked really well. I think treasures were a big part of that. There was also a little bit of a, a like a hidden. A hidden, almost like a hidden cheat code with this archetype in this format because there happened to be a very important card for this deck showed up in both Rivals of Ixalan and Ixalan proper, and that was Sailor of Means. You could pick mm-hmm. that card up in all three of your packs, whereas most of the other cards you couldn't do that with because they weren't printed in both sets. So there was this little like bridge that brought the blue-white treasure deck from Rivals into Ixalan proper that really made the deck come together. If you didn't pick up your Sailors in the first two packs, you could you could still hope to find them in the third. Mm-hmm. Now, notably, this one could dip into green. Uh, and also, this was not one that the devs had planned, I don't think. This is something that people just found out you could do. And when it happened, it was awesome. Agreed. So next up, we've got Hour of Devastation. I believe this was also a small set, right? It was. If I remember yeah. correctly. Next up, we've got Hour of Devastation. This one was blue-green ramp. So this deck ramped into stupidly big payoffs. Uh, something like Sandworm Convergence, which is a, a huge enchantment that makes worms every turn and prevents your opponents from attacking with their stuff. You had Scarab God, Scorpion God, these absurd late-game bombs that if you ever got to resolve them, you'd win the game. So the trick was getting them out as fast as possible and making sure you could cast them. Conveniently, this set had tons of any color fixing. There were multiple creatures that tapped for mana of any color. And there were also uh, lands that tapped for mana of any color. And there was also... Uh, I think this was one of the kind of where Gift of Paradise really kind of started taking off. It felt like for three or four sets in a row, we saw Gift of Paradise effects, which is, you know, the the kind of classic one in a green aura enchant land, and it either lets it tap for a mana of extra any color or tap for two mana of any color itself. So this format happened to be slow enough that this was a good game plan. Uh, Funnily enough, the original Amonkhet was extremely aggressive. So this kind of where the the Gustwalker format you were playing two twos and you were attacking with them every single turn. Blocking was not allowed. However, Hour of Devastation kind of swung back to the other end of the spectrum. The late game payoffs were often just good enough to beat whatever aggressive start someone had gotten if they had just you know taken a bunch of Gust Walkers. Yeah, that was an interesting, so this deck, interesting format. Um, the way that it spun like that and it was just so drastically different than its first iteration, I I think was very fun and it was it was kind of a nice way to get out of the. Uh, the mindset of, wow, I can't block anything into, okay, cool, we can take time to do these dirtily things and build these five-color decks that actually can win games. Next up, our first miss, Battle for Zendikar. So this format was fine. The whole Not format one of the better was a miss, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't great. 
my beloved green kind of got stiffed here. Uh, Blue green had the archetype of converge, which I'll admit was kind of interesting design wise. Converge was a keyword mechanic where the more colors of mana you spent to cast the spell, the bigger a payoff you got from it. So uh, this required you to kind of do some things that didn't work very well, such as hitting many colors of mana early in the game. There was a, a three mana card, it might have been called like Tadru's Stalwart. I don't know, someone look it up. It was two and a green for a zero one, and it comes in with a plus one, plus one counter for each color of mana spent on it. So if you are playing this in a two color deck, this is coming in as a three mana two three, which is just not good enough in modern magic. If you somehow manage to hit, I don't know, like what's the best case scenario for this, right? It's literally just uh, five color, right? It's a it's a, a four or five or a five four or five six or whatever. Well, that's the thing. It only costs well, it two and a green. Be, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so at, at cap, this is a three mana three four. If you manage to get it uh, on curve, that would mean you have to play three different lands on your first three turns, right? So this just didn't work out very well. Green ended up not being very playable. I think the biggest problem was that it was split between some more aggressive strategies. Uh, allies were a theme in this set. And then this late game blue-green converge. There were better plans. There were Eldrazi decks going around. Like <laughs> there, were, there were better things to be doing than you know messing around with the number of colors of mana you could get. Your opponent would look at it, shrug, and just kill you, right? So I think this one kind of missed. Notably, this is the first time this was planned uh at least in a while in the time that we've been playing magic this is the, one of the first times when the the devs were like look try to play five colors and it didn't really work yeah i think a lot of that comes down to the way that converge was was set up and the way that green didn't actually meet it right converge tells you you know you read that mechanic and that tells you I'm supposed to play multicolor like two colors isn't enough if i want to play these converge cards and get their on rate because some of them were over costed with the expectation that yeah. the converge effect is going to make them over rate right like they're going to be worth the extra cost because the converge co the converge bonus is is big problem was the fixing wasn't quite there the support in green wasn't quite there and as we've seen and talked about already so far this episode green is generally the backbone that these five color archetypes are built on outside of you know that blue white treasure deck but that's a bit of an anomaly here. And when green doesn't come up to like doesn't come up to 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 bat as it were, then these five color decks really tend to fall apart. And this one was a format where green didn't get there and they told you you were supposed to play multicolor. So it was like one of those situations where you put bad cards in your deck to justify a plan that was already not that great. <laughs> yeah. And you could have just been playing better cards without any plan and still done better. I think the common mana elf in that set was like a three mana two one or, or something stupid like that. It, it it just wasn't a very good set of enablers and the payoffs also just didn't really get there. Next up, we've got our, our second miss. This one's a little bit of a, a sub archetype. This was from M21. This was shrines. So we had dual lands in this set. We had the shrine cycle, which was supposed to incentivize taking a bunch of these shrines, which are these legendary enchantments, and they get better the more of them you play with the ultimate payoff being Sanctum of All, which is a five-color shrine that you could theoretically use to tutor out a bunch of other stuff. I mean, if anyone opens it in the draft, chances are no one's taking it. So, I mean, if you're trying to do the shrines thing, the expectation was you might wind up with one of those. Now, in a format where one-drop aggro was a pretty common strategy, you had stuff like Basri's Acolyte ending the game on turn four or five. This was not the best time to be messing around with shrines. This was, again, just a bad plan, right? Yeah, it's a, it's another 
situation where you have an interesting plan that could have been good given a different format, but it was put into a format that didn't allow for it to breathe, really. Like Ben said, we had very aggressive decks, and basically in M21, if you weren't playing an aggro deck, you were probably not favored to win, and the Shrine deck really needed to get through that early game, and it just couldn't in this environment. But in a different environment, it might have actually been a pretty solid strategy. So let's take a look at some observations we can make of these past five color strategies. So I'm noticing that the ones that work out well tend to be unintentional. They tend to be ones where uh, people kind of discover this archetype on their own. Another thing I'm noticing is that they tend to be good when there's late game payoffs. There's these late game bombs that are worth splashing. Uh, things that are worth bending your deck's mana base a little bit, trying to warp your mana base in order to play. The ones that tend to not work out as well are ones where the plan itself is not very good. So shrines, even if you manage to get a bunch of shrines, I mean, they're legendary. Sometimes they just kill each other. <laughs> uh, and occasionally they'd be just too slow and inefficient as is. And in Battle for Zendikar, the plan, as we mentioned, just wasn't very good. There were better plans happening. So with these ideas, let's take a look at Kaldheim. I think we got a hit here. Kaldheim has reasons to play off-color cards as well as reasons to play five colors. So I said these are kind of the two uh, the two breeds of five color decks. The ones that want you to play all five colors for say a five color or max color payoff. And then ones that want you to say splash a slightly off color rare, maybe a, uh, a multicolor rare that you could potentially put in your late game deck. So looking back the sets where you were only incentivized to do the maximize color things, uh, M21 and Battle for Zendikar both fall under this. These were both flops, and they were saying, try to play five colors if you can. But the formats that allowed you to play up to five colors, thanks to efficient bombs, good fixing, and the speed of the format, were hits. So this one kind of has a bit of both. This one has that late game splash ability, but it also then has a few payoffs that are, they're kind of saying, if you're already going this far, if you're already going this deep, well, guess what? Now you have Path of the World Tree which helps you fix and also is an extra payoff. And I think path is really good. There are a few things contributing to this, right? We have more multicolor cards than pretty much any set ever has. There are mm -hmm. 32 color cards in this format. If you include the, the, the land cycle. Um, and so those already are kind of incentivizing you to make sure that your deck is set up to be able to splash. If you can't splash cards at all, then a lot of these multicolor cards just get thrown out because they don't fit, and a lot of them, even in the same colors, don't fit the same game plan. So you really need to have the flexibility to be able to splash these cards for them to even be playable. That said, there are also a number of ways to fix mana, such as Svela at Uncommon, and a couple of other different ways, Goldvein Pick, things like this, where you can get multicolored fixing without really costing you anything. And mm -hmm. they kind of even allowed for this in their, their mana dork. Typically, we see something like Llanowar Elves, you know, a 1-1 one, one for 1 that taps for green, great, That that's, you know, that's good and it ramps you, but it doesn't fix you. In this case, we have a little bit of a slower slower option in Sculptor of Winter, but it can untap any color of mana if you have the Snowlands to do that. So, it kind of helps, it doesn't really help fix, I guess, in that way, but it does give you extra pips of whatever color you might need if you, if you happen to have that land already out in the battlefield. Mm -hmm. So, this has kind of brought me to reevaluate some of these past sets. I think the presence of these uh, maximize the number of color card uh, archetypes, I, I think these aren't necessarily bad, whereas it, it might seem to historically imply that. I think they just didn't have the right home. 
I think they just happen to be incidentally misses because of the speeds of the archetypes and because of their context. But I think Kaldheim is kind of showing that these uh, like pay five colors of mana type cards can actually work in the right place at the right time. So this format has a lot of very efficient ways to fix your mana. Svela, the Dual Lands, Glittering Frost, Shimmer Drift Veil, Jaspera Sentinel even. And like you mentioned, the pick, which has kind of gone way up for people. Plus, there's a lot of great cards that really like being cast in late game. Yeah, there is so. also like a hidden, uh, maybe not hidden, but we've we've talked about it in our format breakdown. And it also was noticeably boosted in, in you know, the, kind of the spotlight by Deathsea recently on Twitter. Kind of what sparked the whole Goldvein pick spike uh, in, in popularity as well is like the five color rune archetype. And... Mm. That's a deck, if you get the rune crown and you happen to pick up a bunch of other other runes, you can kind of get away with not playing a five-color deck while still playing a five-color deck if you only are focusing on the runes as being your five-color splash. And those work out pretty well, but that's also kind of a hidden sub-archetype that we aren't even really hitting just yet uh, with, with what we're talking about here as far as the five-color snow thing goes. But that's another you know side option that you have if you want to draft five-color in this format. Mm-hmm. So if you want to see a great example of a five-color deck, I highly recommend checking out LSV, Luis Scott Vargas, co-host of Limited Resources, and honestly, my favorite Magic player. The guy's just awesome. Check out his draft that he posted on February 10th on, on the Channel Fireball YouTube page. So he starts off with a pack one, pick one, Waking the Trolls, which is a the green-red late-game rare. It blows up your opponent's lands. You get a bunch of trolls. It's a, it's a great card. It wants to be cast in the late game, kind of naturally. You can ramp into it if you want, and it is green, at least half of it. These are all great things to start off with for this deck. So he then takes uh, Sirulf's Packmate, some Snow Duels, uh, and then early in pack one, midway through-ish, midway early, he gets a Path to the World Tree and a Svela. And at this point, because he's already got those enablers of the dual lands, he's able to say, okay, well, I'm a- I can move into this now. Because I have the enabler, because I had the fixing, I'm going to be able to activate the World Tree. I'm going to grab it. So then he continues taking, after taking uh, the World path to the world tree and Asfella, then is able to take some more snowlands above what you might otherwise consider to be playables. So then in pack three, once he's got all this amazing fixing and uh, ability to get there in the late game, he can take pretty much anything he wants because his mana is so good, he can just grab whatever. So it almost reminded me of the the old Rivals of Ixalan, uh, the way you'd open a pack three and just take whatever the rare was. He opened a Draugr Necromancer. He was like, yeah, sure. I've got like two black sources in my deck already and they're both snow. Like I have six snowlands. Of course I'll take the Necromancer. So yeah. uh, he, he grabs an Asika's Chariot then too. And because he had cut snow so well, he ended up winding up with uh, three Svelas and three Path of the World Trees. Wow. It was nuts. You know, I, I just, I was just thinking here, Ben, I think I have a, hopefully not a hot take, but I have the, I'm of the opinion just from listening to uh, some of the discourse that's been going on on in like the Twitterverse and, and different magic players as well and talking with you and such. Cube players, cube drafters are going to be better or already are better at Kaldheim draft than non-cube drafters. And the reason being, cube teaches you very, very well how valuable lands are in a format that cares about having the right lands. Whether that's for fixing, whether that's for for ramping or just setting up your colors properly, cube is a great environment to learn that lands should be high picks in formats that care about them. This is a format that cares about them. Lands should be high picks, and you're seeing that through this this draft that you just highlighted by LSV taking those lands early above other playables. Like, listen, at this point in Magic's history, every limited format 
is full of playables. You're never yeah. scrounging around for your 23rd card. You're never scrounging around to worry or, or worried about hitting your playables. And lands are perfect to kind of fill up, especially in a format like this that cares about them so much. You're going to get the playables, take the lands, which you won't get. Yeah, I think I would agree here. I know personally, it, it sometimes hurts to have to take a good snow duel over something like a rare, right? Especially because we're still kind of new in the format. You still want to try things out. But enablers are just more important than payoffs because payoffs don't do anything without enablers, right? So yeah, I mean, we were we were looking at that crack draft type thing. And, and even though my deck had some snow payoffs and it, it, it didn't have a ton it wasn't a dedicated five color snow deck we still had the snow land as one of the one of the top cards in that pack and there were a lot of there was a lot of good competition in that pack there's mm-hmm. a reason for that and that's because these snow lands are highly valuable in this format due to the, the payoffs and due to the speed of the format as well so this isn't necessarily the only way to get into the snow deck what you the listener might be wondering now is well how do i draft this deck so i would say in general it involves a greenish or snowish start this would be something like first picking uh, some kind of snow land, potentially, uh, whether that's a, a tap land or a, a shimmer drift veil, which I think actually you can first pick. Uh, taking those duels early is just a great way to get into snow. And you don't necessarily have to be five colors. You can make a perfectly reasonable blue-green snow deck or blue-green red snow deck or blue-green black snow deck. But potentially, if you have this great fixing, then if you happen to pick up a path of the world tree, say midway through pack one, if you've already got the great fixing, then you can just jump right on it. So these other big green rares that go into the late game, uh, Waking the Trolls, I already mentioned Starnheim Unleashed, Asika, God of the Tree. These are ways to kind of push you into the five color archetype. Some other things that are important for this deck, Wraths, uh, especially if you're the, the black-based ones, which these can be. Uh, Blue-black snow is a very real thing. And it's a little harder to get into the five color deck from that because blue-black doesn't provide the same kind of fixing as, say, a green base just because of the presence of elves. Uh, but Blood on the Snow and Crippling Fear are both great ways to survive into the late game. One way that these decks tend to lose is if they don't make it to the late game. That's why I think a lot of these five-color decks, you can reasonably play an 18th land because, uh, say, you need to hit that uh, Linworm to kind of shore up the late game. Well, then you don't mind that 18th land, and you also don't mind drawing that extra color that you needed. So Blood on the Snow is just kind of a way of making sure that you can sweep away any creatures that were beating you down early. Card draw tends to be pretty good. Uh, it lets you hit your land drops. Packmate is a little bit better than Behold the Multiverse, I think, in, in the five-color deck because it affects the board early. And I think, really, this deck wins if it gets to six lands and a, and a stable board. Uh, whereas Behold the Multiverse, it is actually possible to get run over if you spend too much time drawing cards and not affecting the board state. I don't know. I, I think I take... If I'm in five-color snow and I have neither, I think I take the Packmate above the Behold just because it, it, it you know gums up the board a bit and of course early interaction is very important here uh, you can pick up some one and two drops i think buying the monsters you can play in this deck as long as you kind of go into it knowing that you're going to be putting it on like a one two or three drop whereas it's not very good in the late game yeah and this is it's also worth mentioning here at this point you know the biggest strength of this deck and like we've said a few times the five color deck doesn't necessarily have to be entirely five color doesn't have to have perfect 20 percent breakdowns on the five colors mm-hmm. as far as like cards in your deck are concerned but once you get into a base like a blue green base or, or a blue red base or whatever it may be uh, or sorry green red base once you get into that base and you, you start to pick up a few of these snow cards early a few of the snow lands early what you really get to see going into the second and third packs are flexibility you see yeah. the ability to take like ben was mentioning just 
open a bomb rare in pack three and take it no matter what color it is because you have the ability to play it regardless of what it happens to be and that flexibility is huge in the draft portion of the of the game it's also great if you have that backbone that nice solid blue green or whatever it may be base with those splashes and the ability to support those splashes properly Mm -hmm. so i wanted to kind of give an example of a deck i I believe i've already posted this one in the discord but this one started off as base blue green so it was kind of a blue green snow deck i think i wound up with uh, four-ish snow land so not even great it wasn't even super into the snow but i managed to pick up a pass the world tree midway through pack one i actually ended up picking up the world tree itself later which was a, a pretty fun flavor win world tree goes really well in these five color decks for for obvious reasons so this deck had uh base blue green so i was playing uh six blue sources between my islands and tap lands seven uh green sources between uh, my, you know, again, forests and assorted tap lands. And then uh, one plains, one swamp, and three mountains. Uh, I think this deck actually could have gone up a land. I might have wanted one additional forest in this deck looking back at it. But uh, because of the breakdown of the creatures, it, it tended to work out. So I had a few Sculptors of Winter. I mentioned the Path of the World Tree. Uh, Bears of Lit Yara. A Glittering Frost for a little extra fixing. And then uh, a bunch of good, you know, other value stuff for blue and green. Um Asika's Chariot, Sarolf's Packmate, Marita the Frost, Bergstrider. And then I was splashing red for most of my removal, a Demon Bolt and Squash. So something that I thought was kind of cute about this deck is that I was in blue-green uh, and uh, moving into red. And then I was starting to think, okay, I'll be putting one Plains and one Swamp in here for uh, for activating Path of the World Tree in the late game. And in pack three, I opened Furia's Retribution, which is the black-white rare saga. And I just took it. <laughs> I just I just put it in the deck. Exactly. And that's exactly what I was talking about there at the end when I was mentioning that flexibility aspect. This is not only an off-color card, it's a triple pip off-color card. And you still mm-hmm. had no qualms taking it, no qualms playing it, because the sculptors, the extra lands you were already planning to play, the Path of the World Tree, uh, the, the, the Packmate, the Behold the Multiverse, the Glittering Frost, all of these things come together to make it pretty reasonable for you to cast that on turn 5 or 6 or something a little bit later in the game where it's going to just probably win you the game. Yeah, exactly. These cards that are late game, just I win the game buttons, uh, these are great in these five color decks. And plus, uh, I, I had to do it for the meme, right? I mean, I'm playing a blue, green, red deck and my win condition is a black, white rare. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's too big. good to pass up. That's that's on brand. So I highly recommend trying out this deck. If you see that path of the world tree and you've already got like, Waking the Trolls or something and you're midway through pack one, that is ideally the best time to go in on it. Don't be afraid to take those snow duels higher than you think you should be. Uh, They're really, really good. Lands cast spells, right? That's one of the first things you learn in Magic. So if you have the right lands for this, absolutely give it a shot. Well, that about does it for us this week. Thank you so much for spending your time with us and checking out this primer, as it were, on the five-color archetype as a whole. Hopefully, you've learned enough to go out there and draft your own five-color decks in Kaldheim, and we'd love to see them. Definitely head over to the Discord. If you're not in there already, you can find the link in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page, but definitely, if you're you're drafting these decks, drop them in our Kaldheim channel, drop them in our Trophy Decks channel if you've managed to pick up a trophy with them. We'd love to see them and kind of break them down and see what picks could have been made better, or what picks really made your deck come together, and... Uh, talk about all things limited of course if you're interested in giving back to us directly or just supporting the show the best place to do that is the patreon you can do that at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod link to that is also in the episode description and another way to really support the show is just pass it around tell your friends tell your family 
Um, if you're interested, tell if your you, dad. Tell your dad. Yeah. If you if you if you like somebody, tell them about the show. If you hate somebody, tell them about the show. You know, spending, I've heard a great way to spend Valentine's Day with your significant other is putting on a nice episode of <laughs> the Draft Shaft. Oh yes. Um, no, but seriously, it helps us out a lot. We're really trying to grow the show this year and to hit our internal metrics or numbers that we would like to see by the end of the year. That is a great way to uh, just spread the love of course if you want to reach out to us outside of the discord and and just kind of chat with us uh without joining the discord you can do so on social media basically at twitter is pretty much the best place to get to us you can find me at Rannick galfridian or ben at betafish1 and the podcast directly at draft pod you can also email us at draftjaffpod at gmail.com and uh, we'd love to chat that's it for us thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next week happy valentine's day everybody you're all our valentine so this is already a really fun show but I wanted to wrap it up with one more bit of fun. So I don't know if you can see behind me. I can see a bunch of stuff behind you. Oh, boy. Can, can you see what I'm pointing at? That looks uh, like I've, some kind of Kaldheim pre-release kit or a fat pack or something. It is. It's a pre-release kit. I finally went and got mine. I'm waiting to uh, to crack it for a while. I, I had a friend that was I'm supposed to crack them with at some point, but I don't know. I, I'm in line. I, I'm in a potential queue to get the COVID vaccine. So oh, nice. uh, we'll see how that's going. Uh I actually have a great local game store, and they always toss in two packs of Kaldheim with every pre-release kit. So we're actually going to do a quick crack-a-pack at the end of the show Ooh, here. Let I me, love it. Let me let you get that uh, that great audio. Hopefully that's oh, coming yes. through the, the pack crack in. I haven't opened a paper magic pack in months, I don't think. Oh, yeah, dude, I can't even remember the last time I did. I don't even get pre-release kits anymore just because I, I haven't really... Been. Actually, last time I opened packs, I know exactly what it was. The last time I opened packs was Commander Legends when we did the the sealed pool thing. oh that's true so, all right then i haven't opened a standard pack since probably the zendikar rising pre-release oh i haven't opened one since well before that like pre-covid actually the last the last pack i opened for standard content or standard standard sets was uh on my birthday uh the the theros beyond death gp that you and i went to man that was eight that was over a year ago yes it was <laughs> all right well Let's uh, let's start off this pack. I, I saw some openings. I watched the professor's uh, booster box game, and it looks like the rares are in the front now. So I'm going to start from the back. First up, we've got Run Amok. I actually found it pretty playable. In, in oh the yeah, it's actually aggressive decks. I think it's actually a pretty high pick. Uh, if you if you happen to be in red white aggro, like it's just a great card. That that trample with the added tough uh, added power is is huge. Yeah, basically lightning bolt, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Next up, we've got Giant Ox. I haven't gotten the Ox Plow combo yet. I don't know if I'm going to. It it, it looks fun, but it just looks like oh, <laughs> I'm just gonna throw away my gems by doing that, right? That's what I think. I it's one of those one of those uh, things that like if I spent gold on the draft, I'll probably be like, okay, I see a Giant Ox. Let's do it. If I'm spending <laughs> gems on the draft, I'm probably not gonna bother. Right. Next up, uh, also in that category, we've got a Funeral Longboat. I guess the Ox can hop in that thing and, and row both of these cards straight out of the pick order. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, we've got Scorn Effigy. I will say, turn uh, two Scorn Effigy, turn three Vega, turn three uh, also then Scorn Effigy. It's pretty sweet. I, I do get a kick out of doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I wrote Scorn Effigy off when I first saw it in the spoiler as just a probably something that was next unplayable it's actually a decent card i I don't mind it in the foretell decks yeah definitely a great way to double spell next up we've got jaspera sentinel which has gone a lot higher up in my uh in my books it's still not great 
But the fact that this thing, it wears equipment pretty well. It can jump in front of flyers. Uh, it's good to wear gold vein picks and, and get in there early. And then uh, if you need to, you can like ramp stuff out with it. Yeah, I mean, it's no Lanor Elf, but uh, <laughs> it's it's not the worst thing in the world. Sure. I guess that's what I'm on here so far. I actually might be on Amok, honestly. <laughs> I, I think I am, too. This pack's pretty bad so far. And it's not it's not getting much better. We got a Dread Rider here. Still have to read this one. This is five and a black for a three seven. Pay one and a black. Exile a creature card from your graveyard. Target opponent loses three life. I think I died to this once. But otherwise, this just doesn't seem very good. <laughs> yeah, that actually seems like it could be front runner for worst card to lose to. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, you can see it coming, too. It just seems bad. Yeah. All right, here's our first like mid-tier playable. Uh, Horizon Seeker goes and gets lands. Yeah, sure. sure. Uh, it, it two for ones a lot of the time, even if half of those two is a land. <laughs> I mean, three power is pretty relevant. I tend to see this trade up a lot of the time. Uh, mm. So, you know, it's not not awful. I guess I'm on that over Run Amok at this point. Oh, don't worry. Uh, the day is saved. We got Behold the Multiverse. This card's just great. Totally unplayable. <laughs> Never would put it in any of my decks ever. I hate drawing cards. Yep. Drawing, scrying. It's funny how much better than Glimmer of Genius this is. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I yeah, even in even in uh Kaladesh it probably would have been way better too. <laughs> yeah, to think, like, like, it's it's funny. Maybe, you know, obviously in a format without energy synergies it, it's it's way way better, but I think even with those synergies it's still better. Yeah, like if Behold the Multiverse was in uh, like that standard, you know, set. I think all the decks that played Glimmer would have just played Behold instead. Even some of the ones that had like minor energy upside. I guess people are playing Confiscation Coup and that kind of thing, but that was sideboard tech. Uh, who, who cares? On to the next yeah. thing. Ooh, we got a Frostbite. Okay, so I'm still on Behold, I think, over Frostbite. Frostbite's good removal, but I think I have Behold higher in just like a raw power. Yeah, I, I think I agree. Behold it helps you find more frostbites later. <laughs> like that's true. I mean, there's just some setup to frostbite to really get the most out of it. And next up, we've got the Bergy Boy, Berg Strider. Berg Strider's Perfectly good. playable. Yeah, yeah, it's a big old frost links. I like this guy. It might be the last common. Ooh, yeah, it is. We've actually got. Oh, I'm a big fan of this. We've got an alternate art Feria Judge of Valor. This is beautiful mm. art. I'm a big fan of Feria. Very good card. Thing. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, gorgeous color palette. Oh, Very good this. card. He's a like, great way to get into the second spell archetype. Um, not sure that I want to first pick it over Behold the Multiverse. Like, Behold's just yeah. easily in the top three best commons. Might just be the best common full stop in the set. And Furia is a double-colored card that also requires some setup to really be good. Like, I had I had an opponent play a Furia against me today that, like, they pl- tapped out to play Furia. And then I just opened like untapped actually i don't even think i needed to untap they yeah what happened was they played furia i untapped passed the turn they played the the green white uh saga uncommon saga that puts a counter on something they targeted their furia and i just squashed it (laughs) (laughs) oh that's a blowout yeah i mean i I will say i'm personally very glad to open it because i wanted to collect this this alternate art i I would prefer to foil if it comes in foil but you know i'm happy to have it i still think next up hold though Ooh, next up, he's back. He heard us talking about him earlier. It's the Basalt Ravager. This is uh, the, the giant wizard that comes in and dome something. Yeah, it's a good card. Okay, this is this is something I have to think about a little bit more than than Furia, because I think the Ravager can be can be a wildly powerful card. Um, yeah, it's still just a four two though, and getting it early can can be a nice way to build your 
build your deck in such a way that you can really take advantage of it. So I think I might want to take the Basalt Ravager over the Behold. Mm-hmm. But that's I, it, I actually think it's close. Yeah, it's sad. They go really well together in the same decks. The, the, the blue-red giants, True. wizards, nonsense is probably the best deck right now. Not by much, but I think it's yeah, pretty it's, great. Yeah, it's pretty powerful. Last uncommon here, we've got Hailstorm Valkyrie. Funnily enough, uh, LSV used this as his win condition in that snow deck I mentioned earlier. Uh, he just had like 10 snowlands, so he would pump the Hailstorm Valkyrie into like a like an 8-8. Yeah, seems good. Yeah, it, it's fine. Uh, another cool one to have. And our rare is... <laughs> not the most exciting thing in the world. It's a Hengegate pathway. The the, the blue-white oh, pathway. Honestly, I really like this it, is though. A- they look amazing. Yeah, it does look great. Um, I don't actually own any of these these pathways yet. I just I don't I don't think I opened any from Zendikar Rising. I'm gonna well, put now this you have the straight best in. One. Yeah, I'm gonna put this one straight into Bruna. Yeah, <laughs> like, best best color combination. So, honestly, that this is a pretty great pack for me. Uh, and let's see if we've got anything else. We've got a snow covered plains. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, so I think realistically for me, it's probably gonna be the Basalt Ravager. But I would mm-hmm. definitely not fault you for taking the Behold at that point. And I don't think anything else is in super high contention between those two for me. Yeah, it's probably that. I think the Ravage is a, a great place to start because then you can hope to maximize it throughout your draft. It also fits in like way too many decks. Like you can play it in red, white. You can play it in like red, green. You can play it in red, blue. It just fits in way too many decks. So it's a nice flexible pick this early as well. Or you could always just take the Giant Ox. Yeah, probably not. Ha, <laughs> ha,